0: Continue with the reading from the Gospel of Luke. John the Baptist said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, "You brood of vipers! He was a really soft and warm guy. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance." Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, well, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats Must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be satisfied with your wages. And as the people were filled with expectations, they were all questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah. But John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff, He will burn with unquenchable fire. And so, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, help us to believe, to receive this today as good news. God, we, as a people, cry out collectively, come, would you please come to us? We need rescue. We need help. We need deliverance. God, our hearts go this morning to those who, whose lives and homes and families were ravaged by tornadoes two nights ago. Lord, the nearly 100 people who, are die, who died um, in nursing homes in Arkansas and Amazon factory and a candle-making factory and all the many, many people without churches this morning, without homes, without roofs, without water. Schools, Jesus, have mercy. This world needs your mercy. God, we pray particularly for those in our country this morning who grieve and mourn. We pray that we would be an Advent people who hold the grief for our brothers and sisters, for our siblings. We ask Jesus that we would, that we would, in moments like this, that our hearts would lean towards longing for you, And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. If you're a little one, bundle up and head outside. Um, Winter came yesterday. Hey, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to church. So good to be together to see you uh, here in God's house. My name is Matthew, and I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Emmanuel. and it's a blessing to get to be together today um, here at church. So thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Um, we're going to be continuing in our Advent um, study this morning, looking at um, what this means for us to, in, in, a, in a, a season like this, to lean into what it means to be exile people, exilic people, what it means to be together uh, in exile. Advent is a season in which we lean into that like longing of, like, we're not home yet. Um, there was a quote, I, I meant to use it last week and then I didn't, um, but G.K. Chesterton, who's pretty famous Catholic apologist, thinker, I wouldn't call him a theologian, but a pretty profound guy from the early 20th century. He wrote a book called Orthodoxy, which is a beautiful book. He, talked about, he talks in it how uh, like psychiatrists keep telling me that I am in the right place. He's like, but when I heard that I was actually in the wrong place, my, birds, my, my heart sang, my soul sang like a bird in spring, and I could understand suddenly why I could feel homesick even in home and this is what advent is kind of meant to stir up in us this sense of like yeah the world is broken and things are not the way they're meant to be and there's a there's like an ache and an inconsolable longing and and desire and angst within us for a homeland for for the kingdom of god and this is that Season where we lean into this together. And our companion in this season, this exile season, is the salty figure, um, John the Baptist, who maybe um, you're surprised to see him as the central figure of Advent, but he makes a lot of sense as Advent figure because he's he's preparing his people for the coming of Jesus and we walk with him as he prepares us for the coming of Jesus uh, on Christmas. I mean, you heard him, he calls the people who come out to be baptized by him broods of vipers. And I think it's important to note that Luke doesn't say anything about ulterior motives in these people. They literally are just there because they like what he's doing. And he looks at them and says, you brood of vipers. Essentially accusing them of, 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 of deviousness and self-righteousness and, and all sorts of things. What, um, what, is, what is going on here? Well, John is—he um, has a word for us in, in this Advent season that has to do with how we think of our lives and how we um, how we live in this moment. And and what's interesting about it is that at the end of our passage, you may have noticed this as well. It says, "And with many other exhortations, he proclaimed to them the good news," which should immediately make you go. What is good about what he just said? He talks about things burning and the winnowing fork and the axe is laid at the root of the tree and he's going to burn you all to the ground. And with so many other good things, he said good news to these people who were out there just to get baptized. They had just come out to be baptized by this man. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to just walk our way through this text. I hope by the end of it, it makes sense why this is good news. I think it is good news, um, but let's begin with just working our way through the text. The very first thing that John says to uh, his listeners is that they are to bear fruits worthy of repentance, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Essentially, what he is saying to them is, "The outward sign of baptism is great it's good, it's fine, but it's actually not an end in and of itself. A lot of times what, um, what well certainly in that day, but even in our own day um, we kind of tend to think of, of, of like devotion to God as being sort of the end in and of itself. Like, what is your Christianity comprised of? Oh, well, I wake up every day and I pray or I go to church... Um, whatever it is. Like, these are the sort of things that we think of as, I read my Bible, I read through it every year, it's, it's, a, it's an important part of my life, and I know that not all of us do stuff like that, but like, that tends to be like, when we think, what's the fabric of your Christianity, of your life with Jesus, we tend to say, well, it's a personal life of devotion, it's, it's the way that I think about myself and, and God, it, it all kind of exists in me. And what John says, which is pretty important, he says, you need to understand that actually this outward, or even these like private devotional things, are, are, are only meant to launch you into a life that is, in his words, fruitful or procreative, that actually the the fiber uh, that or the thing that tests the fiber of my personal devotion is what my life is like after I say amen, after I close my Bible, after I leave my prayer closet. That's an old term. None of us have prayer closets, but you know, it's like it's a Puritan thing. So after I leave my prayer closet, then what kind of person am I? This is actually what tests the fiber of my devotional life Uh, To God and John says, there's a thing that we get to do now that we have been baptized in water, and it is that we are meant to be we are meant to be procreative people with our life. One cannot draw the conclusion from the New Testament that we're not supposed to also have private lives of devotion to God. Jesus clearly modeled this. He also taught his disciples it. He talks about it a lot in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, but also throughout Luke 18, Luke 11. Jesus is constantly saying your life with God, your personal private life with God deeply matters. But what's on the other side of the amen matters as much or more. I think if there's something that maybe people uh, in our culture and in our moment have against evangelical Christians is that there seems to be a real disconnect between private devotion and then a life that is procreative on the other side of the amen. Um, that what people, if anything, have a have a sort of a critique against us, people in our camp, it would be that we actually um, we, we, we claim sort of a monopoly on truth, look down our nose on people who don't think the same way as us, even other Christians, um, let alone people of other faiths or people who have uh, no faith, and 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 then at the same time, when we have the opportunity to lay down our our lives, to give up our freedoms, our individual rights for the sake of others, um, we're unwilling to do so. John says your life is meant to be um, like a gift. Like the way that we know it's really working is that your life is pointed outward at other people, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And so they um, rightly ask the next question, what shall we do? It's a good question because John is talking about things that we do. He, they, they do not say, what should we believe uh, if this is true? But rather, what should we do if this is true? And John speaks to three groups of people in our text. Uh, if you go back, you can see them. There's, there's the crowds, and then there's tax collectors, and then there's soldiers. And all three of these groups um, have, in their own sense, a form of power that they are holding. And so John is speaking to people who hold power and says, this is what you do with the power that you have. If you're a crowd, you have power in size. If you're a soldier, you have power in military might. If you're a tax collector, you have financial power. What do you do with the power that you have that is fruitful, that is procreative, that is for the sake of others. And there's three things that I think are really, that are just really simple that I want to pull out of this. Three things to see in John's instructions to them. Because you saw, like, he's like, what should we do? He's like, well, if you have extra, give it away. If you're a tax collector, like, what should you do? Like, don't use use your position to shake people down. Like, just do your job right. He basically says, like, hey, don't be a jerk. Like, that's his big, like, what should we do? Stop being a jerk. If you're a soldier, don't extort people. Like, you know, just do your job be content with your wages. It's the most basic, simple thing. He's not, he's not saying, like, he's, he's, he's not doing anything super profound here. He's basically saying, first of all, uh, what you do is practical. The first thing we see is that it's practical. If you have extra food, if you have extra clothes, these, these go to other people. In, Luke, uh, in Luke's writings, so both the gospel and then in the, the, um, the, the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke, and it's like Luke 2. Um, in Luke and Acts, uh, again and again, Luke plays with this idea that a person's devotion to, to God is directly correlative to, to how they handle their possessions and how they handle power. What you do with possessions is symbolic of your heart. Uh, Luke is telling us again and again. So the first thing that John the Baptist gives us is just a really practical thing. Like it's something that just happens like every day with the things in my hand. You don't have to go far away to do it. It's just like it's it's available to you right. Now, the second thing in John's instruction is that it's contextual. It's rooted in their vocations. God calls us to follow him where we are right now. I think a lot of times um, we have a tendency to think that, like, we have to go somewhere else to, to, to be like where we're supposed to be. And like, of course, like if you grew up in sort of a missionary church, like I grew up in, like that was like overseas. If I want to do what I'm supposed to do, I have to go overseas. I have to buy an airplane ticket and get a passport and go and do something great for God, or maybe like go into the hard part of the city here. But in reality, like all John says is like, what's your job? Like I, um, I'm a software developer. Okay, do it well and um, be kind to your workers and, um, you know, be content with what you make. Like, it's so, like, it's just, it's what, it's the life that you're living in right now. It's not on the other side of this graduate degree. It's not on the other side of this season with your kids. It's not on the other side of, of getting the renovation done in your house. It's right now. It's in the context of your life that you're living in this moment. This is where the space is for you to be a procreative person. It's not, it's not on the other side of the new year. It's today. What are some ways that we can do this as a people? Um, uh, we can think about what we're buying, where our goods are produced, um, at what expense. We can think twice about where we shop. One of the things that Micah Dalton um, is so good—he's just helped me out so much with our team—is he's always just making sure that we're thinking about like where we get, where like where are we ordering food from? Who owns this restaurant? Like, what are we, what what are we doing with the money that we have to to even like in simple decisions sew into the fiber of our city. Like, he's just constantly having us ask those questions, and I'm like, I don't think that way intuitively. So where do we get our stuff from? And, and who is potentially being, uh, taken advantage so, so that I can have the things that I have? We question things that are routine for us. Is someone somewhere being oppressed by my actions here? We love the people in front of us. They're the ones that we're called to. This is hard sometimes, because the people in front of us are maybe the most annoying people. Right? <laughs> if we're honest, there are the people we, it's like we'd like to go somewhere else. It's easier to love other people, and we're called to love the people right in front of me. Um, I think in our context, something that would be contextual for us is we talk about gentrification and the way that we're playing a part of it. What we do is to, to, to curb it, to slow it, to honor the, the historical uh, neighborhoods of the city, and not to just you know be like, "Oh well, you know, free market." We teach our children that the world doesn't revolve around them. We follow a budget. We just make sure that the money we have, like we're using it well, like we just give an account to, I don't know, whatever, whatever software you use, that we're actually like stewarding our resources. It's contextual. And then also, finally, it's other-centered. The repentance that John calls each of us to is for the sake of others. This is profound because it helps you and me understand what is human vocation? Like, what do we exist for? We exist to be like God, meaning to be other centered, to be outward facing. The wonderful thing about God, even as a Trinity, is that God is always and forever loving and enjoying the other persons of the Trinity. And then out of generous being brings into existence the world. Why? So that we can experience that kind of generous being with one another and with God. That The whole posture and bent of God's heart is outward-facing. Meanwhile, St. Augustine famously says that our bent is in curvatus and se. It's curved in on self. And like what the sin nature is that all of us have within us is this just isolation, individualistic, me-first thinking that drives so much of our life in society. Um, and I we all know that this is true. We just do think about ourselves first and foremost. We do tend to consider what will this cost me before we think what it costs others. And we don't maybe even like that about ourselves. It's just sort of the way we find ourselves in this world. And yet John says your life, your vocation as a human being is meant to be outward facing, directed towards other people. It's other centered. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, the Old, the Old Testament theologian, I was I was watching like a a lecture and he talked. He was talking about the Ten Commandments and you know the tenth commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's and then it's a whole bunch of stuff: ox, wife, house, dog. You, just, you should just, know, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. And what, what Brueggemann says is that the word neighbor is a check on acquisitiveness, which is a great, great little thing. Because what he's saying is that when we, when we look at other people as neighbors, we understand that we're actually intimately connected to one another, that we are uh, inextricably bound and tied up to one another, and that we don't actually have a choice in this, that we rise and we fall together. And that the, the, the degree to which we are, uh, we are resistant to that, that we're bent in, we're like, no, I'm me first— To that degree, we will harm ourselves and also everyone outside of us because we're living outside of human vocation. He says uh, in in an essay he wrote years ago, 20 years or more ago, called The Liturgy of Abundance and the Myth of Scarcity, Brueggemann writes, We who are now the richest nation are today's main covetors. We never feel that we have enough. We have to have more and more, and the insatiable desire destroys us. Whether we're liberal or conservative Christians, we must confess that the central problem of our lives is that we are torn apart by the conflict between our attraction to the good news of God's abundance and the power of our belief in scarcity, a belief that makes us greedy, mean, and unneighborly. And he goes on to say, the conflict between the narratives of abundance and the narrative of scarcity is the, this is, I, you could say he's exaggerating here. I think this is profound. It's the defining problem confronting us at the turn of the millennium. But that was 20 years ago. It's not true anymore. The gospel I'm kidding. The gospel story of abundance asserts that we originated in the magnificent, inexplicable love of God who loved the world into generous being. What happens when we forget that we are inextricably bound to one another? What happens? Um, This is what happens. 6% of sub-Saharan Africa is is vaccinated. That's what happens when we forget that we're bound to one another. How does that happen? It happens because tax-funded vaccine research which should become a public good because you paid for it, is instead held on tightly, the patents by big pharma, who refuse to release it to the world so that wealthy nations can buy their products and we continue to be vaccinated and boosted into infinity. Meanwhile, the global South will receive no vaccinations and become petri dishes for the next variant and on and on and on. And this is the next 20 years of our life. Because we refuse to have those of us who have hold on tightly and are unwilling to share generously. Christians should be the very first ones to say, we should release the patents and let the world heal. We should be the first people to say debt forgiveness of the poorer nations and of the poor is a right, is a good, is a thing that we should be fighting for. People often talk about Christian nations. And, they say, and typically when you say we are a Christian nation, they mean a few things. They mean, first of all, um, That we are a a people who only understand romantic love in one way. The second thing we tend to mean is that individual rights cannot be trampled on by the government. I don't know why that is connected to Christianity. It's not, but it's what we mean. And thirdly, we mean that the Bible should be authoritative in, in shaping social conscience and social policy. And the thing is, if you read the New Testament, a Christian nation should be wildly anti-violent and anti-war. They should be all about debt forgiveness. They should be welcoming to the alien without hesitation. They should be a people who uh, who understand that what it means to be uh, on the earth is to be good stewards of the earth, and it's a place where the proud are toppled and the humble are lifted up. This is what the Bible, this is what the New Testament says a Christian nation is like. Um, This is what John the Baptist is reminding us of, that what we are called to as Christians is to be other-centered, to be about the the good of other people um, first and foremost. A liturgy of abundance views the things that I have as being sufficient not only for myself but for others as well. Um, I think there's something helpful in the picture of a fruit tree because fruit trees don't get to choose who picks their fruit. Right? Like, anyone can walk up to a fruit tree. I mean, assuming you're not on someone's property. Like, anyone can walk up to a fruit tree and pick fruit off of it. And that's what it means to be a procreative person. To just, like, to just leave, leave it out there. Leave the branches out there and let people come who need it. Um, then it says that they began to talk about this. It. It's like, hey, this is pretty uh, exciting stuff. Maybe this guy's Messiah. And he says, I'm not Messiah. I am here to baptize you with water. I'm here to prepare you for Messiah. And then he says this, there's one who's coming after me who's going to baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. Um, The fire is the purifying presence of God on the earth. And the Holy Spirit is the power of God to live a new way. When John says there's one who's coming who will baptize you with, with fire and the Holy Spirit, he's essentially saying there's one who is coming who's going to purify you and make you so that you can live into this impossibly high ethic of being endlessly outward-facing, of, of, of undoing the incurvatu sensei and instead pointing myself outward. There's one who's going to come and do these things for you, and then the Holy Spirit is going to come and put it in your heart so that you want to do these things. Um, in Jeremiah 31 Um, The prophet Jeremiah, the exilic prophet, is writing to the people who are, at this point, um, devastated. They've lost a homeland. They don't know the way back. And the reason that they're in exile is because they have led themselves there through their own stubbornness and unwillingness to, to follow the laws of God. They have led themselves to exile by their own doing. And Jeremiah says... The days will come, this is chapter 31, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and of Judah. Not like the ones I made in the former days. But I will put my spirit within them. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And no more, this is so great, and no more shall one say to another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. That there's going to be a day in which universal knowledge of God is actually the truest thing, because God is coming to baptize us with what? with the Holy Spirit, so that the law of God is written in our hearts. And what John is saying is that this is the promise of Messiah, that this is what he's coming to do. He's coming to make it possible for us to live into this way of life where my life is about others and not about myself first and foremost. This is the mission of Jesus. Jesus, in fact, says later on in the gospel, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. And then Luke summarizes this big sermon with, and so he preached the good news to them. Which raises, of course, the question that we started with. How is this good news? Um, The good news that John is saying is that the life he is calling us to through the ministry of Jesus is possible. That we don't have to stay in this place forever forever. That the world as it is right now is not the world as it will be. That there is something deeply good on the horizon through Jesus that will be ours. Even the image of the winnowing fork, you know, like, so he's like, he's got his winnowing fork in his hand. You know, you guys have all cleared the threshing floor, but just for those of you who forgot, who it's gotten rusty, when you're clearing the threshing floor, you put the winnowing fork in, right? This is how you do it. And you throw it up in the air. And what happens when you do that? The wind comes, and it blows the chaff away. And what falls to the ground? The grain. The thing that feeds the people. The thing that grows another crop. That's what falls to the ground. Jesus comes, and what does he do? He takes all the chaff in my life and in the world, all the things, all the things that have no weight to them, And he blows them away, where they will be quenched, well, they will burn in unquenchable fire, and what remains is unshakable. C.S. Lewis writes in the The Great Divorce. Here, can you just put it up there, Becca? Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. For all that can be shaken will be shaken, and only the unshakable remains. How is this good news? The good news is that through Jesus, this is your ultimate future. This is the ultimate future of the earth, of the world. That because Jesus has come to baptize us with fire and with the Holy Spirit, he is purifying his people. We sing this at Christmas time to make us fit for heaven, that this is what is happening within us. And that is good news, that it's not ultimately up to you to figure this out. You're not the one who has to muscle yourself into this, that Jesus is the one who come and does these things in us. I was blowing my driveway last um, week and there are 200 billion acorns on my driveway right now. Anyone else have, like, it's, it's a bounty crop um, of acorns. And uh, I remember hearing Tim Keller say years ago, um, something that's just stuck with me ever since. I'm, I'm out there, just blowing. Just, I mean, it's incredible. Squirrels are running for their lives. And, and I remember Keller saying, there is enough potential life in a single acorn to cover the earth in trees. Isn't that cool? It's true, right? because it just keeps going on and on, drops more acorns. There's enough potential life in a single acorn to cover the earth in trees. And as I was doing that, I was thinking about this text, and I was thinking, how cool is it? There is enough potential light in a single person baptized by the Holy Spirit to, in time, cover the earth in the presence of God, because it gets passed on from one person to the next. This is good news, That the world as it is right now—a world that is dark and full of death, a world that is full of grief, in which people continue to lament the injustice and the oppression, not to mention just the 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 raw pain of life, of loss, of death—that the final word spoken over the earth because of Jesus Christ is good, is life, it's fire, it's light. In a couple of weeks, we're going to come on Christmas Eve and do one of my—I think it's my favorite liturgical gesture of the whole year. Um, We're going to turn off all the lights. And it's going to get totally dark in here. And usually a baby cries, almost on time. Like it's like they know, like this is a moment. Baby cries. And then Ginny or I will light this single candle right here, the Christ candle. And from that candle, we will light every candle in this room. You'll just see it move out. And that is an image that John is giving us. This is what the world can be now because Messiah has come. And so we lean into it. We lean into the ache. We as Jenny said week 1, we grieve the dying. We tend to the living because we know that there is enough potential life in just one person with the Holy Spirit to in time cover the whole earth with the presence of God. Let's um let's close by praying the collect. I think it's kind of actually just captures this whole thing. We're saying essentially in this prayer um We need you, God, to do in us what you say you want to do through us. The kind of people you want us to be, we need you to stir up your power in us to become those kinds of people. So essentially what we're saying is, Lord, as you throw my life up in the air, Lord, would you make me the kind of person through your power where the grain, the seed falls to the ground, where the unshakable remains, where something substantive and life-giving for the sake of others dwells and abides so let's pray together stir up your power o lord and with great might come among us and because we are sorely hindered by our sins let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us for jesus christ our lord to whom with you and the holy spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. You are loved. Anyone would like to be prayed for, please come to the front. We'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, we will see you today at the Christmas party outside and then um, next week. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.